so we have been in this little mini-series on the book of Psalms, where, as I said last year, we're kind of piling Psalms into our Joy in the Morning series until the one day that we get through the entire Psalter at some point in probably the not-so-distant future. But that's one of these goals that I'm just kind of playing with, that we just keep on kind of piling through the Psalms because they are such a wonderful book to get acquainted with. It's the, it's the prayer book of the Bible. Um, It's the way Israel expressed their heart to God, whether they were lamenting over everything that they were going through as a nation, whether they were celebrating and praising God for his provision, whether they were expressing their gratitude to God. It's a wonderful book to even guide our own prayers. And so I would encourage you to be reading through the Psalms whenever you have a chance. But when it comes to this particular Psalm, What we're dealing with is what has been called a creation psalm. And so hold that in your minds for a few minutes. But really quick, something I've been noticing, and I don't know if this happens as you get older, and so some of our older saints, please let me know if this is the case. I'm I'm, I'm noticing that I'm more inclined to watch National Geographic documentaries on nature. Does that happen as you get older? Is that like a thing? I think so, right? And, and that's just what I've been doing. And so I've been watching these National Geographic um, documentaries. And, and it's not like I didn't like nature when I was younger, but, but I'm finding that the older I get, the more I appreciate it. Now, granted, I would run around the woods as a kid, but I wouldn't stop and, and look at a leaf. I would just kick the leaf or try to start a fire with it. Kids don't do that. This past week, I watched one on Yellowstone National Park. It was really cool. It was really fascinating. And, and seeing the changes in seasons and how different animals instinctively know how to respond and how they respond in the same way year after year. It was mesmerizing. Right after it was over, I started watching another one on the Great Barrier Reef. But at that point, my kids had enough. They were done humoring me, so I put something else on. Now I bring that all up because our text this morning draws our gaze toward the wonder of creation. But what that wonder does to the psalmist is that it reveals something not only about nature, but the nature of God and how he works. See, Psalm 8 is a familiar passage, and for good reason. It picks up on some major theological themes, and it's one of those passages that shows up at some pretty key moments in the New Testament. In other words, this is a critical passage. Similar to last week, I think it's important that as we read through this psalm that we use that imagine-if grid that we were working with last week. The individual being described here, while the words are most certainly true of humanity, there are some obvious head-scratching moments where we're left wondering, who in the world is this psalm talking about? So a little bit of context. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've been learning that when we read the Psalms, it's important not simply to read them individually, but rather to read them in relation to the surrounding context of other Psalms. Because the Psalms, as as we've talked about, are not just a collection of individual prayers, while they are that, but they've been put together in a particular way to tell a story about God, the God of Israel, and, and David, the king of Israel, who ultimately leads to... Jesus. And so some questions to consider when reading a psalm. What book of the psalms am I in? There's five books. 
What does the preceding psalm or psalms talk about? And what do the psalms following this passage talk about? In our case, we're in book one of the Psalter, and Psalm 8 sits in the middle of what can be categorized as a grouping of lament psalms. Right? So lament psalms is a particular genre in the book of Psalms where the people of God or a person of God is crying out to God, expressing their, their pain and their anguish about the things that they are going to. We have a sermon on the genre of the Psalms. We also have a sermon on our website on the story of the Psalms. I'd encourage you to check that out if you have not. And so Psalms 3 through 7 are personal laments, while Psalms 9 through 14 have more of a corporate feel to them. In the midst of this lament, careful readers will be drawn to Psalm 8, which provides relief for the mourner. Notice the final verse of Psalm 7. After 54 verses of crying out to God, of reminding himself of God's faithfulness in the midst of the darkness that he's experienced, his heart is finally moved towards praise. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. And I will sing praises to the Most High, the name of the Lord, the Most High. There's this anticipation of worship. That's about to unfold as we read Psalm 8, which brings us to our text. And so our text begins like this. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so this is confusing in English because it looks like the psalmist is simply repeating himself, which, which psalmists do do. Like, that's a literary device to repeat yourself, to kind of get the reader in, in tune with what you're getting at. But these two words, O oh Lord, our Lord, are not the same word. And that's actually really important for us to recognize. Whenever you see Lord in all capital letters in the Old Testament, the Hebrew, the Hebrew behind that is God's covenant name, Yahweh. The second Lord is the English equivalent of master. So, oh Lord, our master. Oh, oh, oh Yahweh, our boss, if you will, to really put it in like colloquial language. It then says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so the psalmist invokes God's covenant name, the one given to Moses at the burning bush. We then read that this name, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, is majestic in all the earth. And this word majestic is important too. It's, it's similar to glorified, only this word deals more with God's visible power, while glory describes the essence of who God is. In other words, majestic describes God's public side or his willingness to be seen. And where is this majestic name? It's in all of the earth, the text says. And so what does that mean? It means that the rule and reign of God is to be seen throughout all of creation. That's what this psalm is getting at. And then we see that the exact same words are used to close out the psalm in verse 9, which forms what scholars call, and here's a, one of those you know, million-dollar words, an inclusio, which is a literary device used to clue readers into the meaning or main idea of a passage. And so all that to say is that our psalm this morning is about how the visible rule and reign of Israel's God extends throughout all of creation. That's what our psalm is about this morning. But right away, we sense a problem. 
Like almost immediately we sense a problem. Remember where this psalm is found. It's in the middle of ten laments over the obviously ungodly and oppressive nature of the surrounding world. God's name is what throughout the earth? Because it sure doesn't feel like it's majestic throughout the earth. And, and this, I don't know if you've noticed, this is a recurring theme that we come back to. God says certain things and we look around and we scratch our head. I'm like, you sure about that, God? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like that's what's happening. So let's take a look here. Verses 1b through 2, it says this. It says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So what does it say? It says, God's glory has been set above the heavens. The psalmist is again using language directly lifted from the Genesis creation account, but we'll get to that later. That's important. This is a creation psalm, remember. It's a commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. It then says that God uses the word. It then says that God uses the words which proceed from the mouth of both toddlers, children, and, and the word for nursing babies. And, and what does he use the, the, this, this, these words for? To establish strength or a stronghold. In other words, God is using baby talk to bring an end to his enemies. Notice the text says, your foes. These are God's enemies. Like, what? Like, that's confusing, right? Again, I'm scratching my head. Like, like, like there are, I, I mean, I've heard a baby cry. Have you heard a baby cry? Does that bring an end to anything other than your sanity? Like, like what, what does that actually do? Because what the Bible says is that, is that out of the mouths of, of toddlers and even toddlers, right? Toddlers are crazy. Like, they're crazy and they're great and they have so much energy. But, like, I don't know if I'd, like, sign them up for, for like, the army or the military to put an end to any foes. That's just me, but I don't, that, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm the crazy one. So what does this mean? Well, turn with me to Matthew 21. This is when the Bible's fun. And the Bible's always fun, but this is when it gets really cool. This passage begins in Matthew 21 with what has been called the triumphal entry, the point in Jesus' ministry when he entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Notice he doesn't come in on like a great steed ready for war. He comes in on a donkey. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday, but in verses 12 through 17, Jesus does something incredible. Read with me here. Chapter 21, verses 12 through 17, it says this, And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So, so Jesus is mad right now. I don't know if you catch that. He's driving out the people from the temple. He's doing some significant work here. And then it says in verse 14, And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, right? What an interesting way of phrasing that. When the, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Like, so, so catch this really quick before we keep reading. So Jesus does this thing. He, he cleanses the temple. And, and basically what he's doing, he's entering the temple. He drives out those who were using the worship of God to exploit the poor. 
And we don't have time to really dig into that right now. After that, the blind and lame come to him. They're healed, resulting in the praise coming from the lips of children. Right? That's something we all want to see. Right? We want to see our children worshiping God. The children of Israel here are worshiping God. And, and as a pastor, if I see children worshiping God, like when we had our, our, our night, our Christmas Eve cookie night, where, where COVID probably spread throughout the entire evening. But when we had that evening, I remember sitting here and reading to the children and how excited they were. And I was like, this is so cool. The kids are like, they want to hear about God. But, but the religious leaders in this text, they were indignant. Like they're mad at what's happening, at what they see taking place. And, and they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? They say to Jesus, you hear what's going on here? You see these, these, these rotten kids and what they're doing and worshiping God? How dare they? And so Jesus responds, have you ever read, like, so, so cool, right? Of course they've read this. They're, they're the scribes. They're the chief priests. They, they know Psalm 8, right? Have you ever read, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? He's actually quoting from the Greek Old Testament there. So you'll notice there's a little bit of a difference. It says, you've prepared praise, whereas in the Hebrew Bible it says, um, you've, you've made them a stronghold. What, what, the, what the Greek New Old Testament is doing is basically saying, you know what a stronghold is? It's worship. When we worship God, that's our stronghold. And Jesus gives credence to that because that's what he quotes. So that's important. We can, we can trust the Greek Old Testament because Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. That's important. But he says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And then, and then he leaves. Like, that's like Jesus' mic drop moment. He's like, yeah, you heard me. I'm out. And so what's the point? In quoting Psalm 8, Jesus is in effect calling the religious leaders the enemies of God. He's saying, you see what Psalm 8 said? That's you. That's you. And it is the praise and worship of these children that serve as the means by which their reign is coming to an end. In other words, Psalm 8 is setting up the reality that God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. That's the reality of the Christian story. That's the reality of what this text, this holy book that we hold so dear is getting at, that God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Remember, we've talked about this. The kingdom that God is, is, is establishing through his people is an upside-down kingdom. It doesn't fit in line with the way the world works because the world would never enlist children in their armies if they actually wanted to accomplish something. But see, God uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong. That's so important as we continue working our way through this text. And so, and so, so let's continue, verses 3 through 8. He then shifts a little bit after he talks about these, these babies and infants um, being the means by which God puts an end to his enemies. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. 
This, this verse right here, these two verses just got me on a rabbit trail this week. You know? And again, the documentary thing comes into play. I'm looking up space. I'm looking at like Hubble telescope pictures. If you've ever gone to, you know, typed into Google Hubble telescope images, it's wild what you see. It's, it's insane. Like I don't have a category for it. But anyway, the psalmist is looking up at the night sky. The heavens, the moon, the stars, and he describes it as the work of God's fingers, like an artist paying attention to every single detail, putting into place the infinite beauty that is the universe. And he then asks this question, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And so these terms are important because in their original context, the terms man and son of man are terms that both highlight the fragile mortality of the human condition. This is important. We're reading the Old Testament specifically. We need to understand what does it mean to the original readers? And then we read it through the lens of the New Testament, and it begins to take a different shape. That's what, that's what, that's what the New Testament writers do with this psalm, but we're not there yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. And so there's this obvious question that I think all of us have asked, and I think for us the question is even more obvious considering, considering what we know about planet Earth as it relates to the rest of the observable universe. Just a couple of things that I found, and, and if, you, if you want to check my facts, that's fine, but the point is that like, something massive is happening. So according to one website that I looked at, Earth makes up about 0.0003% of our solar system. The sun, on the other hand, holds about 99.8% of the solar system's mass and can fit one million Earths within it. Betelgeuse, not only a movie, but a star which can be seen in the constellation Orion is 700 times larger than the sun. And it's 642.5 light years away from Earth. I don't even know what that means. And the furthest the Hubble telescope has seen so far is about 10 to 15 billion light years away. Again, I have no idea what any of that means. And maybe some of you guys know what that means. I don't know what that means. But I think that actually further solidifies the point that the psalmist is making. When I look at your heavens, the moon, the stars, I can't help but ask the question, what do you see in me? And I think we've all asked that question. When we, when we look up or when we Google images or, you know, some of you who are more scientific and know the math behind what's actually happening in, in the universe, you're kind of like, what? Like, Sometimes I feel like what, what looking at space does, it either, it either makes our faith or it, it, like, it terrifies us, right? And what, and what I think the psalmist is getting at, and, and with the little knowledge he had of the universe, and we have, we have a ton more now, like we just do, that's just how it works. He's like, what? Like, really? Like, you, you see something in me? What do you see in me? I don't fully understand. But then he answers his own question. He answers his own question because, because the psalmist, which, which appears to be David, he, he knows his Bible. He knows the story of the scripture. And so he's immediately drawn back to, to those words in Genesis chapter 1 where it says, let us make man in our what? Image, in our likeness. So he answers the question in verses 5 through 8. He says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Crowned him with glory, with honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of 
the seas. You read that, those couple of verses, and if you have any sort of knowledge of, of the Bible, especially those first couple of pages, and, and maybe you're one of those people that do the Bible in a year, but you, you feel like you never make it, but you feel like you've read Genesis 1 probably like 40 times at this point because you keep on wanting to do the Bible in a year, and you keep on getting to about like, like February, and you forget like two days, and then you forget three days, and you're like, oh my gosh, like there's like so many pages to read, and I just don't have time. What I would encourage you to do, keep reading. Just keep reading. Like, even if you skip it and go to that, like, just read. Just read the Bible and let it, you know, marinate. But all, but, but all that to say, what do those words remind you of? Genesis, chapter 1. He's, he's intentionally taking our minds. He's saying, I need you to remember Genesis chapter 1. I need you to remember the creation account, the beasts of the field, the, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. These, this, these words are lifted directly from Genesis. Dominion given, again, lifted directly from Genesis. And so a couple of observations in this text. It says that, that man is created, and let's say humanity, because I think that's a, a better way to understand it right now. Humanity has been created a little lower than the heavenly beings. Wow, what does that mean? Well, this term is actually the term Elohim, which is, which is a Hebrew word for God, but it can also be translated as heavenly beings, angels, gods, or God. So hold that in your mind. Then it says that, that, that humanity has been crowned with glory and honor. One, one scholar makes the, the important observation that these are actual specific characteristics of God himself that, that adorn the frail humans created in his image. And it says that, that these humans are given dominion. The psalmist is employing royal language here, crowned and dominion. All things are where? Under his feet. Do you remember something else that was under feet? Genesis chapter 3. What scholars call the proto-euangelion, where, where it says that the serpent will be crushed under the feet of God, the seed of the woman. All things under his feet. Again, another royal claim. A clear allusion to Genesis chapter 3. And then it says, then it has these lists of animals, birds, sea creatures. Again, this is lifted directly from Genesis 1. And so what's the point? So the reason why God is mindful of humanity and cares for humanity is because we have been created in the image and likeness of God. In fact, all of creation, the works of his hands, which would include the works of his fingers, are under our feet and within our realm of authority. And so, so that right there should be like, what is happening? What does that mean? I, like, Wait, the, the works of God's fingers and hands are under the feet of humanity? And that's what the Bible says which means the authority that we possess as human beings made in the image and likeness of God is, is a participation in the divine authority that, that Yahweh possesses. That's who we are. That's important. It's important for a number of reasons. Just, just this the idea of human dignity, what we are worth. This is why we care about issues like abortion. This is why the Bible says that we should not murder. 
This is why it breaks our heart. Even though we, we, we weep with hope when someone, someone, someone passes away, it's still one of those things that just doesn't feel right. Death doesn't feel right. It's unnatural. It goes against the very idea of what we believe about humanity. And so then the point of this passage is that the majestic name of Yahweh will be known throughout all the earth. And the means by which God is accomplishing that is through those who bear his image. Now, a couple of important things to recognize, that image bearing in the ancient world has some meaning, and we need to understand that meaning. And so, so what, what, hap- what would happen in the ancient world when, when, when a king had some sort of territory or a ruler had some sort of territory and, and, and he couldn't be in every spot because we're not omnipresent. We might be made in the image of God, but we're not omnipresent. And so when a, when a ruler couldn't be in every spot, they would set up images of him, the king, to let people know that this is who we serve. An image of the king would be placed in different parts of a king's rule and reign. But, but there's also another idea in the ancient world that we need to understand, this idea of a temple. Because actually, Genesis chapter 1 talks about the creation of a cosmic temple. That's what the Garden of Eden is. It's a temple. And what does, does, does a, a religious group do with the temple? They, pray, they place the, the, the image of their God in the temple. Why? So that the people who worship that God can know what they're worshiping. It's, it's, it's the image. That's the God. And, and so if we had a, a temple that, that say, say we were really into like pizza, like myself, like I, I, I sometimes worry, do I worship pizza? But I don't, I don't, I just love it. But, um, but if we built a temple to pizza, we would, put a, we would put a picture of a pizza in there to let everybody know this is our God. It's not. Like if you just take that clip out of context, people are going to think we're in a cult, but we're not. Um, and so what happens in the garden temple When God creates it, he places his image in the temple. That image is different than the other images that are in temples. That image is living and breathing. It actually has the breath of life of God that has been breathed into it, to us. Why? So that we might reveal to the world who this God is. So that others might know who this God is. So that the, majestic, that, that, that the majestic name of God, our Lord, the covenant name of Yahweh, might be known throughout all the earth. See, the goal of, of Eden was, was that it would extend and that it would cover the entire earth. That was the goal. And, and we know how the story goes in Genesis chapter 3. The fall of humanity kind of puts an end to that initial plan. But God's, God's on the move, and we know that. But there's some problems. There's always problems, right? The majestic name of Yahweh, as we mentioned earlier, it's not known throughout all of the earth. The authority and dominion that, that humanity received from the hands of God is marked by what one scholar calls unrestrained exploitation, which is when dominion goes bad. And we've seen dominion go bad in so many ways. It's exercised, right? And we saw it at the Tower of Babel. And God messed that up. But we see it in, in, the, in the powers and authorities as they, as they get their mitts into, into local governments and national governments and, 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 and kings and queens. And, and we've seen this throughout human history, how, how humanity has taken this beautiful divine authority that's been given to them, and they've completely obliterated, they've exploited it, 
and they've used it for death and destruction because this is the deal. Like We're either participating with God or we're participating in the enemy of God. Who are we participating with? And so, so while this psalm is beautiful, it also causes us to kind of look around and say, but that's not what's happening. That's not what's going on. I think it's really important because this is what was meant when God instructed his people to not take his name in vain. Now, I'm going to say something a little controversial, but follow me here. I, I truly believe we've cheap, cheapened that instruction by telling our children to say, oh, my gosh, instead of, oh, my God. Now, now, I'm not saying that we should teach our children to say, oh, my God. It's important. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. That is dis- disrespectful, right? We should be aware of that. But that's not what the third commandment's getting at. The majestic name of Yahweh has been trampled by God's good creation because time after time, humanity has chosen autonomy over faithfulness to God, selfishness over sacrifice, indulgence over praise, and exploitation over stewardship. That is what it means to take the name of God in vain. That's important that we get that. Because that is different than than simply using a flippant reference to God. We shouldn't do that. It's disrespectful. But that's not what the third commandment has in mind. That's not what's going on there. We are called to make his name majestic in all the earth. And so what is Psalm 8 getting at? The image of God which is the foundation of human dignity and worth, is best reflected through humility and weakness, which is why Psalm 8, with its babbling babies and frail humanity, sits as a beacon of hope amid the surrounding laments where wicked oppressors appear as though they are gaining ground daily. Psalms 3 through 7 are all about the suffering of David, while Psalm 8 is about glory, honor, and royalty, which means that suffering does not diminish glory and worth. It does not remove authority. In fact, what we learn throughout the grand narrative of Scripture is that suffering is actually required, and it is the means by which glory and honor are achieved. That's upside down. That's the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the very life and ministry of our King Jesus. Weakness, shaming the strong. We need to be reminded of this because we are so easily taken by the world, by our culture which says that the strong man wins, the fastest one wins, the most harsh one wins, the one who dies with the most toys wins, the one who is the most violent and oppressive wins. And, and, and it feels like that. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. And that's not the trajectory of the life of the church. It can't be. And in fact, when it was that, and, and oftentimes is that, we see how, how horrific and devilish it is. We look throughout human history. Any time the church decided to be in cahoots with the world, it did not lead to flourishing. It led to death. 
It led to pain, and it led to this horrific witness about what God is like. That's not the God we serve. And we might pick out a few passages that show God and his might and his power crushing and and doing all these things, but but the overall story of Scripture is is not that. It's it's a God of peace who's wanting to make things new, who's wanting to to, to act in love, And, and, and he shows us that. The very image of the invisible God is who? Jesus. And he dies on a cross so that we might go free. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, verses um, 5 through 16. There's There's a typo in your program. It's not 26, it's 16. That was my fault. It says, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It's been testified somewhere, some eight, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and with honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Then he says this. He says, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That's important because that's true. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone because it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of God, children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, what happens? He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And so just a couple of things from that passage that I think are really important. Everything is under the control of Jesus, even though it doesn't look like that. And so Jesus, the very image of the invisible God, was for a little while lower than the angels. He was crowned with glory and honor. And what does it say? Because, or you can translate that word as through, he was crowned with glory and honor through death, via death, by means of death. That's how Jesus was crowned with glory and honor. Why? So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And what else did that death do? Well, in verses 14 and 15, it says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject, all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. And so death is used as a weapon against death. Death is used as a weapon against death. And what we see being articulated in this text is that it is the humility of Christ that wins the day. We are going to be in the book of Philippians in a few weeks, and we are going to unpack so much about the humility of Christ. 
So much. I want to read another passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, just to kind of further elaborate on this point. It says, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and it's really interesting, there's this little verse in Genesis where it talks about Seth, and it says that Seth was made in the image and likeness of Adam. And so, so things get a little, little hairy there. They get a little messed up after the fall of humanity. Um, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies where? Under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus is the means by which God is crushing and snuffing out the enemy. And then in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, it says that we are the means by which God is crushing Satan. It says the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. The nursing babies, the toddlers, the frail mortal humans, this is how God's kingdom works. This is how God's kingdom works. The image of God, which was first made manifest in the Garden of Eden, where faithfulness and utter dependence and reliance upon Yahweh would have dealt a death blow to the enemy, was redeemed through a baby crying in a manger who learned obedience through what he suffered, who was mocked and stricken by men, who was ultimately lifted up upon a Roman cross to die. It was Jesus' Jesus's obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that serves as the means by which the powers are being devastated. And he calls us to go and do likewise. Psalm 8 teaches us that it is not by the sword that people will come to know who Christ is, but it is by the humility, sacrificial service, love, mercy, and tenderness of his people that will reveal to the world what God is like. And so what we need to be careful of is that we do not get duped by the powers and authorities, that we do not allow political entities to tell us how we should function as the church regardless of what side of the aisle you might be leaning toward. They don't tell us how to live because guess what? They're controlled by the powers and authorities. The church is God's plan. The church is God's plan. The humble, sacrificial, serving church is God's plan to redeem the world to Christ. We have to get that. We have to get that. And it's so tempting to look to other powerful means. It's so tempting because we want answers now. But God is calling us to patience. 
God is calling us to humility. He's calling us to be the hands and feet of his son, Jesus. Psalm 8 is a psalm of hope. Hope that was fulfilled in the person and work of King Jesus. He is the son of man created a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, whose dominion stretches across all of creation. Our imagine if king is starting to emerge again. And those of us who bend our knee to him in faith, who declare him as Lord, who entrust ourselves to him for our salvation, are gifted not only with the forgiveness of sin and eternal life, but the calling to extend his majestic name throughout the earth. And the way we do that is by embodying the weakness of babbling babies, by humbly walking in faithfulness and obedience, serving the least of these, loving our neighbor above ourselves. The path of humility and weakness is how God establishes himself as king. It is the way his image is best reflected and his rule and reign extended throughout the earth. And the question that we must wrestle with is whether we're willing to clothe ourselves in that Jesus. That's the Christ of the Bible. That's what Christianity hails as king. Is that the king we desire? That's what we got to wrestle with. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. Lord, we are challenged by your words, Lord God. I have been challenged all week by your words, Lord God. But Lord, this seems to be the message that you are pounding into us as a community of faith. It's all over the scriptures, Lord God. We cannot escape it. God, give us the faith to walk in humble obedience, Lord God, to entrust ourselves to you. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.